Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Well, we are very lucky to be talking with Chuck Shannon, who happened to be my nephew. Very proud uh, to be the uncle of uh, Chuck. He's uh, my, my oldest brother's uh, Tom's son. And um, give you a little bit of a background on Chuck. He's, uh, he's born in the Northwest, and now he lives in North Carolina. He's got some great uh, businesses he's involved in right now, and he's got a great story to tell. So welcome, Chuck. Thanks a lot for having me, Joe. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, Chuck, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Um, where were you born, and uh, tell a little bit about your, you know, schooling, all that type of thing. Yeah. So I had a a, a great childhood up in the Northwest. Uh, you know, lived in and around the Seattle area. Uh, graduated high school from uh, uh, Oak Harbor High, which is on Woodby Island. So really had. Uh, the ability to take advantage of all the great things that the Northwest offers, you know, snowboarding and, and uh, hiking and um, having fun out in the, out in the woods and, you know, cliff jumping, you name it, any, anything that uh, we could come up with, but it was a great uh, environment to, to be able to experience all the, all the um, benefits that the Northwest offers. Um, in high school, you know, I was able to do a lot of sports um, and be participants in, in the school activities and whatnot. Uh, I did high school wrestling and high school football, uh, kind of my focus areas. You know, everybody's got the dream of, uh, you know, one day, you know, playing professional football. But as you go through the process, you, you kind of figure out like, hey, if you're not born at, you know, six feet three and uh, 250 pounds, you might, might need to have some other, uh, other skill sets in your back pocket that, uh, that you can invest. And I think, you know, my daughter, she's uh, um, going through college right now. And, and so she's playing scholarship lacrosse and what same, same thing applies, right? Is, Hey, you're there for an education, make sure that whatever skill set, when the, when the music stops, you have a capability that you can bring and offer people. So I have always kind of had that approach of, yeah, I'd, I'd love to have the sports and activity and enjoy the discipline, the uh, work ethic it, it brings as well as the uh, uh, teamwork, you know, all those things are core uh, individual a- attributes that I've been able to kind of instill in my life, but <clears throat> you always have to understand that, you know, your individualism and, and your intelligence is really what's going to get you, get you to that next horizon. Um, oh, so let me, so let me break in there. So what's the, uh, so when you were wrestling in high school, what was your weight? What were you wrestling at? Yeah, I wrestled at uh, 168. Um, so I would drop down from about 205 and then cut down to one, 168 uh, for wrestling season. They, they, after right after football, it was pretty grueling. The the distance running went way way up, and uh, you know you really curbed your diet. I, I could um, yeah, I would cut down pretty good. So I'd I'd sit about one seventy five or so, and then just cut down for the tournaments. So, um, you know, I tried wrestling when I think when I was in uh, I don't know fifth grade or something. I lasted about one tournament when I got my ass kicked and. Uh, 
just said, hey, what the heck? This is not for me, man. I, I went to the basketball court and hung out there. What what makes a wrestler tick? Why, why do guys like you – I mean, some of my best friends are, are wrestlers and just – you know, it's like a cult almost. I mean, it's like a huge thing. What 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 makes a person want to wrestle? I think it's uh, it's the ultimate challenge of uh, individualism and competition. You know, there there's no excuses. No one's going to come out there and help you. It's you against another individual, and you're matched up based on your skill set. I think a lot of uh, you know martial arts and a lot of these sports now are are drawn upon that same kind of foundation that. Um, you know, you match your skills up against another person and everybody's had the same amount of time to prepare. They've got access to the same amount of, you know, weights and, and training rooms. And then at the end of the day, when, when the whistle blows, it's you and another individual and that's it. So I think it's uh, internalization of, you know, how far can you push yourself? Uh, you know, what are, while you're sitting there on the couch watching TV, what, what's your opponent doing right now? And those are some of the things that, uh, you know, make you want to get up and, and uh, run that extra mile or, or push another set of weights or go through another couple training iterations to ensure that you're prepared uh, and you can win when the day comes. So uh, you, you wrestled in, in, you wrestle in grade school too and high school or just in high school? Uh, yeah, starting in, in seventh grade. And really that was the, that's a cool story. Um, you know, in, in my youth, you know, you get a little, a little bit squirrely and you, you know, you're, you're dabbling into, into probably things that you shouldn't. Um, and then I met uh, an, really a, a, life, uh, a life coach that taught me at a young age. His name was Jack Harcourt at, uh, when I was out in uh, Virginia Beach wrestling with the, that team there. I had never done any real, real serious organized sports. And when I showed up there, uh, he was like a nationally ranked coach. And his program was just, it was mind-blowing. I didn't think that we could start a practice with a five mile run and then go through a three hour iteration. And this was in seventh grade. So it really uh, showed me that if you don't quit, if you continue to push that your, you know, your mind is a lot stronger than your body and you can push it a lot farther than you could even dream. So uh, a lot of life skills were, were born in that, uh, in that wrestling room with Jack Harcourt and uh, kind of started me down the path of like, Hey, uh, you know, if you wanted to, if you want to get it done, it, it depends on you. So, you know, it's a great, it's a great life lesson I learned. I was really fortunate to pick it up early. Wow. Seventh grade. That's, you know, I, we, we've had a few other people, uh, you know, uh, on the podcast and a lot of them have run into a mentor that basically had them see a different vision of hard work and consistency, waking up every day and doing the doing the extra thing and that that adds up so that's that's really cool and then uh you played football what, what position you played football yeah so i was uh outside and inside linebacker and played fullback uh so it was a great opportunity to help support the team but you know um, moving fast and, and hitting hard was kind of what we were about and uh it was a great time but like i said i mean uh, you'd think that um kind of another challenging story is my sophomore year, my high school football team was terrible. And, you know, I was joining on this team as a young, you know, uh, I, I made varsity the first year and then didn't get a lot of playing time, but man, we got hammered. We were, our conference had the state champion in it, Cascade High School, and uh, we, we got beat by them 68 to zero. Oh gosh. We went 0-13 my sophomore year, but then 
you know, I, I was able to, by the time my senior year, we ended up seven and three. So it was, you know, really getting a hold of the team and, and working together to believe that, hey, we, we can be something better. So to go from a 0 and 7 team to uh, 7 and 3 and have a shot at the playoffs uh, and really brought the state champ. And at halftime, we were tied at 13 uh, 0. So it was a, a good um, story to, to go from a huge deficit to a team that could compete and uh, was really proud to be part of that. So, so you're in high school, you're, you're hovering anywhere between 170 and 205. You're thinking, hey, maybe I could wrestle in college. Maybe I could play some college football. Yeah. What, what move did you make? Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the recruiting programs are nothing like they are today. Uh, you know, where you're getting seen by a lot of sponsors up in the Northwest, real small school, didn't probably get as many uh, visits as you would think, you know, because you don't know the process, right? You don't know to, to you know, go to these camps and where you're actually being, um, uh, <clears throat> you're actually being uh, interviewed or, or, or prospected at, the, at that point. So um, come the end of wrestling season, you know, which is late in the recruiting year, I, I did have a, a potential to go wrestle at uh, Pacific Lutheran University. Uh, it's a private school down in Tacoma area. And, um, and so the, the tuition was just, was just too much uh, to, to get into school. So uh, it was kind of that summer that I decided, hold on one second, just doing an interview will be done in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> um, so anyways, the um, uh, at Pacific Lutheran, Lutheran University, the tuition was too much. And then, you know, so that was that summer. And, you know, you decide, what are you going to do after high school? And uh, I think really that, that's when my buddy comes walking in the door and he goes, hey, man, I'm going to be, I want to go be a Navy SEAL. You want to go? And it was almost the same time that I had just gotten that, uh, the uh, tuition assistance. And it was like a $2,000 uh, grant or something like that. So it really wasn't too much. And, you know, my, here's my buddy walking in with an opportunity to go be a Navy SEAL. And uh, I was like, hell yeah, that sounds great. Let's go do that. And um, went down to the recruiter's office um, and kind of talked to them. And they were trying to sell you, hey, yep, do two years on a boat. And then, you know, with your CO's approval, you can go try out. And I was like, there's no way that I'm going to jump on a boat for two years uh, without a guaranteed contract. So anyways, the, we went back down to the Army recruiter and was able to get a Ranger contract, you know, signed. So I was trying to, uh, I think what drove me to the military was that team aspect uh, being part of something bigger than yourself. And then, you know, obviously serving, I was in, uh, Woodby Island as a, a naval community. So I think that that kind of opened it up. And then you look at the benefits of, Hey, if it all doesn't work out, you get, you get GI bill, you get, uh, you know, automatic, um, uh, healthcare stuff taken care of, you know, you get a dedicated paycheck. So it was a, it was a process that I could got to go from one controlled team environment into another team environment. And um, so uh, it was really interesting to just make that jump. And at the end of the summer, I shipped out in September and uh, went to uh, uh, Fort Jackson for basic training uh, and with a destiny of trying to uh, go to the 75th Ranger Regiment, uh, which is a, a kind of elite in infantry unit uh, in the special operations community. So that was uh, kind of my first step and transition from from high school into the military. Okay, so that's a that's a pretty big step, my man. So you're you're, you're hanging out in the Northwest. You're you're basically 
living a, a great life, outdoors life. You're, you know, you're, you've got, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've had a pretty good athletic career. And then you end up saying, listen, I want to be a, uh, a ranger. So well, I don't know if people understand what that is. I mean, I, I've, you know, I, I have no idea what it is either because, I, you know, I've gone through the, this, the rigor that you guys have gone through. I, I follow some, some cats that uh, on the internet, I, uh, this guy, David Goggins, I follow his stuff um, on the internet and I've uh, heard him speak and, and the, the kind of rigor that goes through that type of thing is just amazing to me. Why would somebody want to go through that type of pain and endurance uh, right off the bat. Yeah, I think it was um, it, it was a challenge, you know, just kind of what we were discussing before, that uh, ability to, to get on the wrestling mat uh, as an individual and push yourself. Uh, this was, at, or in a team environment like football, I think uh, joining the Rangers was kind of that same, uh, same mentality. It was, um, you know, real aggressive. Uh, you know, you talk about obstacle courses, you talk about, you know, patrolling and, and carrying heavy weights, and then you know, relying on that camaraderie and that uh, esprit de corps of, you know, your mates to your left and your right, you know, you don't want to let them down. And they're thinking the same thing where well, I'm not going to let, let me down. So, you know, you're pushing each other and you're, you know, you're part of an elite group that is very small uh, and has a ton of capability. So we would spend uh, hours training and, and, and trying to better ourselves all the time. So we had the, you know, unlimited access to, to ammo and, and training time. And, and really the, it is a, an elite organization that it is fed everything it needs. And so the guys just really accelerate and do well there. And, you know, we were able to travel to uh, like Vegas Island, Puerto Rico, we did uh, Panama, you know, so you're doing these extreme environments and you're camaraderie with your teammates. Cause you look over at him and, you know, he's got sweat running down his face and, you know, you're about out of water and he's giving you some of his and, and it's just a great experience to really mature from a young man into a, a full-grown uh, man uh, by, you know, hardening and honing those skills. I think it was a great uh, experience to uh, grow up. Plus, it, um, it took me away from, uh, you know, my family. So I was on the East Coast now, uh, totally separated. Uh, so you're, you're dealing with your own finances now. You're, you're having to deal with, you know, paying phone bills and, and trying to get some transportation, build up credit. So it was all the good steps for me to, to, to not um, rely or um, have to lean on anybody else and really discover who you want to be and kind of take your past experiences and then apply that into uh, the person that you want to be. And that was, uh, it was a good time for me. Uh, I spent three years at the 75th Ranger Regiment uh, in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, deployed on um, uh, several operations and, and training missions and stuff, but uh, it was a good, good start for me. So t tell me uh, physically what the metamorphosis was. So you, you got out of, you, you get out of uh, Oak Harbor there. A year later, what was there a difference physically and mentally in you a year later? Uh, yeah, I, th I, I think um, once again, pushing yourself to, uh, to the limits. I mean, some of the ruck marches we would do, you know, 25 miles, uh, or we would start off a run in the morning at like four and it'd be 10 miles. Uh, and then <clears throat> you, you'd be running by the Chattahoochee River, you know, in the pure darkness. 
and then we'd all jump in the river and then hop back on the road and can continue to go. It, it, you really taught yourself that, you know, you're, you're in the time of your life where, you, where uh, there, is no, there is no limit to how far you can go. I think I slimmed down a lot. Uh, we got uh, and just got a lot more, lot more strength because there's rope climbing and upper body strengths and they had a lot of uh, weight training that we would do as well. So it was either, you know, you were eating, running or in the gym. Uh, or training, you know, that was kind of the life of a ranger. So, so physically then, basically, you, be, um, you know, they say that a lot of us use about three or 4% of our potential. Is it sound, it, I'm getting the impression that when, when you go to uh, a ranger school, uh, ranger training, their job is to make sure that you get a lot more potential, you know, and, and that they show you, hey, listen, there's a lot more possible than you think. Yeah. Is that, is yeah, that I, bigger? That was that the thought? No, absolutely. You're, you're kind of describing. So once you get to the 75th Ranger Regiment, one of the schools you go to is actual Ranger certification. So it's a 68 day course uh, that transitions from uh, the, the mountains uh, or starts in Fort Benning, goes to Lonica, Georgia in the mountain phase, and then you end up in Florida for, for the uh, swamp phase. Um, and what that is meant to do is you, you're, you're limited on food. So your, your chow is, is two MREs. So it's probably a total of, you know, 2,500 calories or, or so a, a day. Uh, but you're moving extreme uh, lengths and, and doing patrols. So you'll move all, uh, you'll kind of rest and plan during the, the mid-morning hours. And then, uh, and then you'll pick up and move out and, and, traverse uh, with full combat gear, which is in excess of 60, 70 pounds, uh, anywhere from, you know, 12 to 15 kilometers through horrendous terrain. And then you'll set up in what's known as an operational base uh, and like an ORP. And then you'll, um, you'll plan and finalize and rehearse the operation. Then that night you'd go out and do, a, do an operation, uh, whether it's a raid or a reconnaissance or an ambush uh, on a mock enemy uh, position and then you'll recover from there and move to another uh, location and then you know e each night you'll get about four hours of sleep and then you'll start the process all over again uh, so you do that uh, in the field phases you'll you'll go for 12 days straight and you know the amount of uh, weight you lose there I, I think I lost probably you know 25 pounds uh, during uh, ranger school uh, so and, and you come out of there uh, just skinny as a rail but uh, it's a place definitely when you're, you're lacking in sleep, lacking in food, and you've got to continue to endure and make decisions and lead and motivate others. Uh, that's the challenge of it is, is everybody gets a little chippy. You know, everybody's hungry. How do you uh, internalize and, and really motivate individuals to press on when both you're tired and you know they're tired? So it's a lot of uh, leadership development and finding out uh, techniques to encourage others to, uh, you know, you have to find that there's a, a leadership challenge in everybody and you're not going to treat everybody the same. There's been a saying, I wouldn't lead a, a troop of Girl Scouts selling cookies the same way I would a bunch of elite commandos, right? You have to understand who you're leading, what their motivation is, and then how to get them to, to really believe in what you're trying to accomplish and then become part of the team and have them actually drag you along. If you're doing that, that's when you're truly leading is you're, the people in front of you are blowing you away of their capability and they're demonstrating, uh, you know, pro progression that you couldn't even imagine. That's really true leadership, I believe. Yeah. So, so 
let's just take the path here. So a lot of kids, they're 18 years old, they go off to college. Four years later, they're 22, they're graduating. At 22, what type of skills had you gained at 22 uh, in, your, in your experience in the Army? Uh, by 22, uh, I definitely graduated Ranger School. I had um, been promoted to uh, E5, which is a sergeant in the Army. So I had three individuals I was in charge of from, from wake up to train uh, to inventory and all the work stuff that we would do. Um, I, would, I would be uh, fully uh, in charge of, of, of them. Hold on one second. Can we pop? Yeah, no problem. Take a break. This one? Yeah, that's fine. I just need to Sorry, they're redoing the, redoing the floors in there. Oh, no worries. So, you, you, so getting back to that, then what type of uh, skills, Sket, did you have? You were, you were in charge of three people uh, at 22. Uh, you, you're basically becoming a, a more of a leader. Um, physically, you look a lot different probably, right? Yeah, after that, uh, you know, you're really putting on the um, – uh, additional strength. Uh, how's the audio in here? It sounds pretty bad. That's not, it's not bad. Okay. Yeah. Um, so after Ranger School and, and at 22, you know, you're definitely uh, in the prime. You feel like you, uh, nothing can stop you. Uh, so there, there was a lot of uh, weight training and endurance running. Uh, we wouldn't bulk up too big uh, as, as a lot of our uh, missions required long movements with uh, so it was more endurance based. Right. Uh, then we we do combatives and stuff like that. So the skill sets, like I said, I had um, uh, a team underneath me. Uh, I was in charge of a shop, working directly for uh, uh, a captain who was a O three level. Uh, so it was at the company level, I was in charge. Um, other skill sets had been through airborne school, uh, ranger school, um, and then. Uh, <clears throat> you know, probably at that time had medic training. So um, close to an EMT level in uh, combat lifesaver uh, capability. Um, those are the skill sets that I had at, at that time at 22 years old. Okay, so tell me, tell me then, um, you're, you're, you're retired recently, right? Yes. And, and so um, tell, tell us a little bit about your career. Yeah, so uh, after leaving the Ranger Regiment, I, I wanted to kind of uh, see what else was out there. So I started applying for uh, special mission units. Um, that took me into the special operations where I was able to, uh, you know, train and uh, get selected for um, certain units that we, <laughs> certain units in the, in the Army that are uh, considered special missions units. And what you are able to do is special operations around the globe. Um, and so I was able to work uh, for 18 years. I was part of an organization that uh, conducted no-notice uh, operations 
uh, around the globe, and we're always prepared for it, and we're always training uh, to, to do that. Uh, while I was there, uh, you know, building on the skill sets, really, once you, you get to that master level of uh, training and, and experience, uh, I started, I graduated from, um, went from airborne to what's known as military freefall school, um, which then I, uh, you know, got over 1,500 jumps, uh, military freefall up to 30,000 feet, uh, both day and night, full combat equipment. I was a military tandem master, um, which would involve either jumping in personnel or large, large equipment in excess of 700 pounds. Um, I ended up with two combat jumps. Uh, uh, became a freefall instructor, uh, so I would train brand new students, take them out of the airplane for the first time, and and uh, train them uh, for about a three week course. So, uh, so I was instructor with those guys. It was great. Uh, other skill sets went to uh, sniper school. Uh, ended up being uh, uh, in charge of the sniper team. Uh, led it into uh, uh, we deployed into Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and uh, Northern Africa or, or operational areas. Um, so was able to use all those skill sets to uh, basically do uh, full, uh, full mission profile uh, operations to support uh, requirements for the, uh, for the Army in, in, by supporting the Special Forces. So was really fortunate to have, have the experiences to really do every type of operation that you could imagine and excel and be part of a a world-changing organization uh, that, uh, you know, I can walk away, as you mentioned, my uh, retirement. At the end of that, uh, you know, because when, when I first got to do special operations, it was 2001, all this had kicked off, you know, 9-11 started and, and we were uh, a whole new breed of uh, operator that was going to be uh, charged with basically changing the, the global landscape for the, you know, by using special operations as a tool. And uh, I was super, super happy to, and fortunate to, uh, you know, walk away with, you know, intact, you know, all my, I've got all five uh, or 10 fingers and toes, um, you know, super happy to uh, have been able to serve and then uh, super fortunate to come out and have a second career. And that's, uh, you know, really, really, uh, is as there was obviously times when when other mates my left and right didn't aren't, aren't so fortunate and uh, we always think and remember about them every day sure yeah so you god you know god blessed you to be able to get out with your health and um you know one of the things that you know you look at with that unbelievable training you've had is that you're still a really young man and now uh, you have the whole future in front of you stateside. What, what's some of the, the, the things that you're working on right now that uh, you're using your skills for? Yeah, so um, I really didn't know it, uh, but probably the decision when I first joined the military helped me out the most. It was when I, when I joined up to become a, a US Army Ranger, I also had a secondary skill set of being a communications specialist. So, I got trained not only as an infantryman and, and a ranger, but I also had like um, radio and, uh, you know, computer skills and things that were applied to my job set. So um, when I transitioned into the special missions units, I had a, a unique skill set and an advanced uh, 
capability of communications. And if you know anything about uh, special operations, you always got to, you know, you're always finding ways to send video or, or, or transmit messages uh, via di different means. And, and I was always the guy that could do that. So in addition to carrying the, the heavy load and, and, and being a, uh, a warrior, I also had the technical capability. So I was always balancing the two. And so I was in charge of researching and finding new, new capabilities. And then how do you, how do you take emerging technologies and, and, and operationalize it so you can use it while deployed? And that skill set is, uh, you know, broad and especially on a sniper team, you're looking at uh, not only the precision fires, but you're lo looking at reconnaissance and collection of information, uh, all kinds of different digital uh, capabilities out there for collecting different types of data. So I would use that, uh, that skill set transcended into my, uh, my follow-on job, which is uh, I am now a contractor uh, for the um, Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, we, I'm part of an organization uh, called Alias Exploitation Technologies. I'm the director of operations, so I manage uh, the entire portfolio of um, task orders that is looking to bring capability to both SOCOM and, and JSOC. Uh, we are a technology innovation and fabrication um, specialty. Uh, you know, that's the professional services that we provide. Um, the the, uh, the job is, is, uh, is, is wonderful for me because I get to uh, work with, uh, you know, computer scientists, mechanical, electrical engineers, robotics engineers. And I'm the, I'm kind of like the transition from the operator uh, to the engineer. I kind of help both understand what is in the realm of possible. And I can kind of uh, go back and forth and, and, and break down to what the engineer needs to know of like, hey, uh, <clears throat> how much power do you want? You know, how heavy does it have to be? Uh, how far does it have to go? And I kind of give them the trade-off analysis that uh, allows the engineer to build exactly what um, the operator needs. And so um, that's kind of my position right now uh, as the director of operations and, and managing all the, the different projects is interface between the end user operator and the engineers and make sure that all the projects are, are done and on time and, uh, and they meet the specifications that they're asking for. We are, um, we're more of a, uh, minimal viable product, uh, new discovery uh, versus productizing. We don't, um, we don't make a product. Uh, so we're focused on delivering a capability that always starts off with, hey, is there a way you can? Or hey, has anybody ever tried to do this? And that's really where we step in and put together a cross-functional team that is uh, comprised of an operator, uh, myself, a few engineers and a computer science team. And from nothing, we'll create the first of uh, an item, and then the government can own that capability and um, you know deploy it out to another vendor to make a hundred of them, or um, you know add it to their technology ecosystem as a uh, you know a, in addition to what they already had. So well, that sounds pretty like a pretty interesting project. Yeah. yeah, are you working with anything else? You're a busy, real busy guy. Yeah, so uh, super excited to work with. Um, you know, some teams out in LA, a lot of, a lot of different uh, partners out there. Um, but uh, one of them in particular is Hackrod. Uh, it's, it's got uh, Mouse McCoy. He's a, he's a film producer. He uh, produced Active Valor, but he also, you know, his life is really unique. He's, he was once a Baja. He won the individual Baja 
world record uh, for motorcycle and transitioned that into film production. And now he's doing um, advanced engineering with virtual reality um, in, a, in a program called Autonomo. So Alias has is, is, uh, partnered with them and we're, we're trying to help develop a capability where you can use 3D visualization to um, photo real engineer in a virtual space that can then be produced into CAD. And we're working with Oak Ridge, Oak Ridge National Labs uh, as a printing capability for next gen, uh, basically printing metal, uh, one-off prints. And we're gonna try and change the, uh, the industry as far as no more manufacturing on an assembly line. Uh, it's just as, it's just as cost-effective the one-off uh, special prints as it would be to make hundreds of them because the machine doesn't, it doesn't matter to the machine. Right. Well, that's interesting. What yeah. other projects you got going on? Um, we're focused on a lot of uh, machine learning, uh, partnering with NVIDIA uh, and working with uh, developing classifiers and uh, object recognition capability. Um, so those are uh, super interesting capabilities when you start putting uh, edge compute out, out on the uh, edge of the battlefield. So machines are now making decisions uh, and with a, with a human augmented, what it does is it gives them a force multiplier. Uh, instead of watching the video all the time looking for possible threats, the machine can handle that while the operator can do other things. And then he gets alerted when, when the machine identifies something uh, so it's not quite uh, in the in the realm of full full mission capable now, but if if you can augment the operator and uh, allow him to multitask, uh, the, it's definitely an augmentation to his uh, original capability. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple general questions, uh, Chuck. Um, what are some of the habits that you have that that you've gained? You know, from the time that uh, you know you were in high school, you know that seventh grade coach was a was a pretty pivotal guy. What are some of the habits that the daily habits that make you effective and and as as a leader and um, and in your business? Yeah, I think uh, I think work ethic uh, is probably the number one. If if I was actually emailing a guy this weekend, he hit me up. He's on a different time zone. He's sending me edits. And I can rarely find somebody that is willing to work as hard as I am. And he was hitting me up at one in the morning. I was like, oh, I love this guy. Because <laughs> he was trying to get, get the project done as quick as he can. He was putting his all, all in after it. And, um, you know, really, I think what employers and what, uh, you know, uh, what they're looking for is leaders that are willing to, hey, I'm all in on this project and I'm going to give you everything that I've got, you know, so... Uh, that's kind of the work ethic uh, that, you know, started me in, in high school and in football and, and wrestling and then transcended the early uh, portions of my military career that I still carry today is, is um, you know, <laughs> extreme dedication and, uh, you know, the, the drive to, to want to uh, and, and bring capability forward uh, and not have to have anybody tell you, hey, uh, you know, what are you doing next? It's always a, you know, hey, what else can I do attitude that, is going to really set you up for success. So I think uh, work ethic. I think the ability to multitask, uh, in, in especially in special operations, you'll have we had all kinds of technologies and two different radios and maps and aircraft flying overhead and enemy moving around. The ability to do um, high quality decision making with a bunch of different uh, 
uh, variables all going on around you and, and, and then deciding uh, which ones are most impactful that you need to make now, which ones can wait and then uh, you know, moderate the timeline to achieve effectiveness across all uh, you know, requirements, I think is also another great skill set to have is multitasking. That's great. So what, what, what do you do for fun? I mean, what, what's, what's, uh, what, what in your life now you, you, you've made it through the gauntlet of, you know, serving your country for all these years and now you're stateside and, um, I mean, you got to make some room for some fun every now and then, don't you? Yeah, I think I'm still working on that. I, I got to figure out what, cause you know, to be honest, if I wasn't at work, I was at home with the kids and supporting the family, making dinner, you know, uh, doing things around the house. So I really didn't have a lot of projects or, or things that I would go do on my own because, well, realistically, I was skydiving, I was shooting guns, I was driving off-road vehicles, you know, I, I was literally doing, uh, driving race cars, you know, so what, else, what other fun do you need? The job was fun. Uh, and so when I'd come home, it was really focused on the kids and spending time and unplugging. And, uh, you know, this weekend was, you know, hanging, hanging by the pool with the kids and uh, you know, washing the cars out front and, and, and trying to you know, spend a lot of time with them as, as uh, my daughter Ashley's uh, in her first year of college. She's doing her finals right now. So she'll be finishing up as a freshman. And then my son, he's 13 and he'll be going into eighth grade next year. That's awesome. So um, you mentioned your, your uh, wrestling coach. Are there any other uh, role models in your life that have, that have really made a huge difference in your life, um, leading you to go one way or the other, or just giving you the, the, the belief that, that, hey, you know, I can make a huge difference? You know, I, I, was, I was thinking about that question, and I kind of look at it as, um, you know, there's tools in the tool bag. And each individual, everybody's got flaws, right? There's nobody that is, is one, you know, all-encompassing individual. But what I try to do is find, uh, like we would do with uh, contract shooters when they, when they came in, is they're not going to teach you how to, how to shoot, but they've got one little technique, one uh, way that they approach a problem or whatever that you can grab a hold of and then make that your own. So I think it's a, you know, a mosaic of, of leaders that I was able to serve with and next to that, um, you know, I would go, hey, that, that makes some sense. Uh, I think I'm going to try and adopt that into my uh, personality uh, or my, my work ethic and, and, uh, or just my, and build, build on my existing strengths. So probably not one individual as it was, a, I was surrounded by, uh, by champions and it's easy to, you know, try and find good qualities in, in high quality individuals like that. And uh, it was really a, a struggle just to uh, remain me mediocre amongst groups like that. That's awesome. And then um, can you tell us any, um, yeah, I'm sure you've had, gosh, you, you've been all over the world on a moment's notice. Are there any defining moments that you remember that, that you just basically, you know, it made a huge impact in your life that you still think back to that time as being, Hey, that's, that's a time that, that really made a difference. Yeah. I think there, um, there was some challenging, uh, you know, one in particular that I think of that, you know, really was, could have been life threatening 
was uh, one night we, <clears throat> I was on a night operation. Uh, I jumped in a, a huge uh, barrel with all my uh, combat equipment kit and you know, left, the, left the back ramp of the helicopter. Uh, everything looked good. Um, went to set drogue, which is a stabilization chute. So pitch black at night over, over top of enemy uh, terrain and uh, go to release the parachute to have it open. And I'm about 10,000 feet in the air and uh, release the parachute and the parachute starts to open, but something happened and one side, uh, I think the brake was released. So it, it turned the parachute into a steep spin. Um, and then it started getting more and more and more violent. Um, so there is a time uh, when all time kind of slows down. And I, you know, was altitude aware. Uh, I felt myself getting pulled down by gravity and centrifugal force in my harness, and I couldn't quite reach the, uh, the brakes uh, to release them. And so, you know, you're in this, in this moment in time when, when, you know, one, you got mission failure, uh, two, you're, it's a life-threatening uh, event. And, and so the clarity of, of being able to think through, I, I remember grabbing uh, what's known as your cutaway, your, your cutaway handle for the bundle. I remember grabbing it and saying, no, I can't let this go. It's got, because it had all the equipment that we needed, right? The whole team needed everything that was in this barrel. And so I'd given it one try to release the brake. And then I, I grabbed the uh, handle and I said, no, one more time. And I reached up and I grabbed. So I'm carrying suspended, like I said, over 700 pounds. Oh my God in a basically a horizontal spin uh, and it's getting more and more violent as the parachute accelerates towards the ground. And so I reached up and I grabbed the, uh, the harness, uh, the suspension lines and pulled it down and was able to finally uh, release the other brake that, you know, let the parachute relax and it straightened out. So at this point, you know, you check altitude again you know, you're at, uh, you know, just under 5,000 feet. So I'd done, you know, about five grand worth of spirals. Uh, and, you know, the, the relief of when you pull that and the parachute flattened out, I checked compass and uh, turned the parachute on the right heading. So we're heading now towards the right landing zone. But that moment was, uh, you know, defining of that never quit attitude, that, that ability to kind of, uh, you know, be thankful for everything that you have. I remember hitting the ground and I, I was talking to the, the different aircraft there and, and um, I let them know that I was on the ground where I was at and they could, they could see me and I was talking to the rest of the team. But then I remember just sitting down, just leaning up against that barrel at the end, uh, you know, after being safely on the ground and just a few minutes to <laughs> gather yourself back up and, and, and let it impact you because in the moment you're, you're not really thinking about what the severity of that that instance had but uh once you hit the ground you got time to reflect you're like man that was a that was, a, <laughs> that was a how, how old were you chuck when that happened how old were you when that happened oh i was uh, probably 30 32. wow uh, it was 2000 2008 somewhere in there so wow yeah 33 somewhere in there so you, at that point you, you, you had two kids and a wife and and that's all that must have gone through your mind and 
way. And you know, how, how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, you're you're on the ground. You're grateful that you're alive. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I most of us, you know, suburbanites in America, you know, we don't really deal with this stuff. So um, yeah. this is you know that, that's why it's such an interesting uh, discussion with you because. I, I'm sure that wasn't the only time that you were in harm's way. No. <laughs> no, and, and the, the funny thing about that was uh, once on the ground, the mission starts. We just started. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. be out there for several days and, and you still have the full mission in front of you. So, but it was definitely a, a, a moment in time that I, I will never forget. And, you know, you, you rely on that. Uh, self, um, self-reliance, uh, the never quit attitude, and then all the previous training and, and practice that you would put into that effort, it, you know, you were able to execute under pressure with clear mind and end up uh, with, a, with a good result. So, Yeah, you know, the, the thing that got me about that story was that, you know, your first thought was, hey, let's all just cut the barrel, then, I'll, then it'll, it'll be like a 200-pound type thing yeah. rather than a 700-pound thing, and and I'll, I'll be fine, but what about the other guys? We're going to be in a tough situation with all our stuff. So, I, really, I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. You team first. I, you know, I was, uh, that's kind of in, ingrained in your mind when you go through that training, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, you, you find out quickly that uh, you're serving more than yourself. You're serving uh, a higher purpose for, you know, you're there for a reason. And there's no, no, no one else to call. Uh, you know, we were at, at, at times the, uh, you know, the nation would, would call us to do things and we were it. There was no second team uh, that was going to come and, and if you messed it up, uh, would finish your work. You're, you're the option. <laughs> so I'm talking to you right now and, and we're in the middle of this, you know, this, this virus that's kind of gone after our country a little bit. Um, what are your, what's your thoughts for the future of the country? Right? What, what are your um, are you, are you an optimist about the future of uh, the country? Um, and, and where do you think we're heading? Yeah, I am an optimist, uh, about the country. I think that, um, definitely, uh, the, the virus, you know, there's a couple different ways to look at it. I think that the severity of the, uh, infection rate and what it does to individuals with, uh, you know, underlying conditions is, is, is significant. And then again, on the other side, you have the other, majority of the population that it's probably going to get sick and recover. I think there's probably not enough uh, talking about the recovery rates. It's, it's, you know, well above, uh, you know, there's only 1% of casualty rate or so the numbers are the numbers, you know, you, right. I can get it. Yeah. But if you think about it that way, um, you know, we have to take a smart approach. I think that, you know, people understanding that, uh, you know, overpopulation, um, can, can, you know, create issues. And I think that, you know, mother nature has a way of uh, kind of cor- self-correcting uh, for, uh, for things that, uh, you know, if we're overpopulating areas, they're just not meant to be or interconnecting areas around the globe. The, 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 the global travel is, is another thing. It, you know, there's, when we were out in the desert, we would land, uh, we would land helicopters in areas that probably hadn't been moved uh, over the sands of time for, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, right? And little microviruses that were in that sand were, were all of a sudden populated when they haven't seen the light of day 
So who knows what, what kind of stuff we kicked up out there. Um, but I think, I think it, the, the world is moving in a positive direction, especially the United States. I think recognition and, and owning our own uh, uh, supply lines and bringing more manufacturing back and having more control. I'm not saying we need to be isolated, but definitely uh, we need to take ownership, uh, maintain our own uh, destiny with manufacturing and technology innovation. Uh, obviously, uh, there's, there's people out there that, that aren't friendly and that have their own, um, their own idea of what the world should look like. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, the United States is, uh, you know, still the last, last beacon of hope. And uh, hopefully that, uh, the, you know, the United States can get rid of a lot of its partisan bickering and really focus on what's, what's important. And that's, you know, providing a beacon of hope to the, to the world and, and helping to show them that, uh, hey, freedom uh, is, is unmatched and, and truly uh, sets us apart. That's great. Well, I, I'm waiting for the book to be wrote, written by you, Chuck. And uh, if that's the case, uh, we want to interview you about your book because, I mean, you've got some great stories to tell. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to, to, to visit with us. What a great story. What a great uh, American success story, American hero. I really appreciate you spending time with us and uh, God bless you. Thanks for your time, Joe. Appreciate it. All right. We'll talk, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Right, Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.